Hey friends, this is part two of our bonus mini-series entitled The Alpha Particle. We call this episode The Helium Shortage. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome back to the Field Guide to Particle Physics. This is your informal guide to the subatomic ecosystem that we're all immersed in. Our aim is to give us all a better foundation for understanding our place in the universe. Last time, we discussed the basics of helium gas. This time, we're going to talk about the industrial applications and economics of that noble gas. It may have been a while, but have you ever been to a birthday party in a big auditorium? You know, lots of tables, party favors, screaming kids, maybe a clown or a magician, and balloons, helium-filled balloons. Where do all of those balloons that those kids accidentally let go of wind up? Yeah, exactly, the ceiling. Last time we pondered the question, where on earth do you go to find helium gas? Raw, in the wild, as it were. Hopefully, thanks to this party analogy, the answer is now clear. We can collect helium when it's trapped by a ceiling. Trapped underground. Helium is mined with natural gas. While drilling into gas wells through the capstone rock at the top of the Earth's crust, helium is released. Some wells have more helium than others. Some of the biggest sources of helium, apparently, come from natural gas wells that are near big deposits of heavy elements like uranium or thorium. Like natural gas, there is a huge international commodities market for helium. Because helium does not interact with other chemicals, it is strongly preferred for numerous industrial applications. For example, helium is used whenever you want to avoid exposure to reactive elements, particularly those in the air. So welders will use helium as a shield to keep the weld itself from exposure to reactive chemicals like oxygen or water vapor. Shipbuilders use helium to detect leaks in the hulls of ships. It's not corrosive and unusual to find in the surrounding environment. If you fill a part of a ship's hull with pressurized helium and find some helium gas kind of outside the ship, especially near a weld or some other joint, you probably have a leak. Rocket scientists and engineers use helium to clean and pressurize rocket fuel tanks. And of course, we use it for balloons, both of the weather and party varieties. Actually, that's something that might be kind of surprising. Did you know that hundreds of weather balloons are launched every day all over the globe? They're used to collect data about atmospheric conditions for weather forecasting. I should say that these balloons are enormous, far bigger than the typical human at launch. Many, although certainly not all, of those weather balloons are filled with helium gas. Some are filled with hydrogen gas, which, though much cheaper, is arguably much more dangerous to work with. Most of these applications are pretty intuitive. Helium doesn't form chemical bonds, so it's a good gas to use for physical, industrial purposes. But there is another application of helium that's a little less intuitive. Cooling. Modern air conditioning and refrigeration systems typically use a working fluid to absorb heat and carry it away so that it can be vented. If you've ever put coolant in the engine of your car, you're kind of familiar with this idea. Liquid helium plays the role of coolant 
in devices that need to be really, really cold, like minus 452 degrees Fahrenheit cold, which is like negative 269 degrees Celsius. By comparison, the average temperature on the surface of the dwarf planet Pluto is minus 387 Fahrenheit, or minus 232 Celsius. What on Earth would need to be kept colder than Pluto? In a word, magnets. MRI machines, Magnetic Resonance Imaging, is a three-dimensional medical technology that lets us explore what's going on inside our bodies non-invasively. MRI works by generating a huge magnetic field. The nuclei of all those atoms inside the substance inside the machine, say the atoms in our bodies, all have tiny little magnetic fields themselves. And the huge magnetic field of the machine causes those little atomic fields to all line up and dance, returning a magnetic field signal that we can measure and use to build images. Sort of like a three-dimensional x-ray, although without the potentially harmful dosage of high-energy radiation. Since the chemistry of living tissue really only depends on the atomic electron clouds that surround the nucleus, no harm is done to the body by MRI machines. MRI machines use helium to keep their superconducting magnets really cold. Colder than Pluto cold. But why would that be? Well, at such cryogenic temperatures, the electrical resistance in the wires that make up those magnets completely vanishes. It's a phenomenon from quantum mechanics known as superconductivity, and that technology alone is fascinating and deserves its own podcast. But for now, let's see how superconducting magnets work at really cold temperatures. Electromagnets are made by coiling lots and lots of wire into lots and lots of loops. The more loops, the better. The more loops you make and the more current that you can push through that looped wire, the bigger the magnetic field you can generate. Just ask any physics high school student. Now, big magnetic fields are useful for all kinds of things. For instance, MRI machines. Electrical resistance limits the amount of current that an electromagnet can hold. The longer the wire, the more resistance there is to build up. The more loops that we wrap, the more wire we need. So unfortunately for those who want to build really big magnets, electrical resistance gives us a trade-off between lots and lots of wire loops and lots and lots of current. But as it turns out, when you cool some wires down far enough, like beyond sub-Plutonian temperatures, that resistance disappears completely. Not approximately, completely. The current you put into such a cold wire can flow practically forever. This phenomena makes it practical to build an electromagnet that can hold a lot of current and therefore generate a huge magnetic field for a long time. But we need to keep them cold. Liquid helium cold. Four degrees above absolute zero cold. Liquid helium is the main practical working fluid for these kinds of cryogenic conditions. Older MRI machines used to go through something like 2,000 liters of helium a month, although efficient machines might use 20% of that amount now. Other scientific research equipment that involve superconducting magnets, notably the Large Hadron Collider, which by the way is 27 kilometers in circumference, are huge consumers of helium. Needless to say, there is a huge demand for helium out there. Now, 
there's a problem with these big superconducting magnets. Once you cool a magnet down to working temperatures in a big machine, kind of like an MRI, you have to keep it cold, even when you're not using it. Even a controlled warming can irreversibly damage the machine. All that electrical current you've put into that superconducting magnet has to go somewhere when the magnet warms up. Once those wires warm just a little, electrical resistance reappears and things can get out of control quickly. It's a bit like driving on the freeway for miles and miles and miles and then suddenly running into stopped traffic. It's not great. If hospitals can't supply their MRI machines with more helium when needed, they could very well be destroyed. Even besides considerations of cost, a shortage of helium is a really big problem. The demand for helium has grown with all of these new technologies, and the market for this commodity has been pretty rocky. Helium, as we've already seen, once used, just kind of floats away into space. It's a very non-renewable resource. And given that it comes from natural gas mining, it's also not a particularly ecologically friendly one. Over the past 20 years, there's been at least three major supply shortages affecting the helium market. And we're just coming out of one right now. Trade, international disputes, and development have all played a role. In the United States, the shift to hydraulic fracturing for natural gas locked in shale has meant drilling wells where there is no helium to be found. Historically, the U.S. has been a dominant producer of helium. The Federal Helium Reserve is a facility, a giant natural cave, outside of Amarillo, Texas, where the strategic helium supply resides. Given how important helium is to rockets, much of the U.S. production of helium was gobbled up and placed in that reserve. For whatever reason, in 1996, the U.S. Congress reversed course and passed the Privatization of Helium Act, which directed the Bureau of Land Management to dismantle that supply, infrastructure, and sell off the entire helium reserve. This sale initiated a huge supply shock, with sales artificially deflated in price. This was amended in 2013 to ensure the sales were governed with market stability in mind, but not without much stress and uncertainty in the marketplace. In short, high prices, short orders, sleepless nights, the damage was done. Incidentally, the national helium supply was supposed to be dismantled by September 30th of this year. The demand side of the market has responded as best as it could. Efforts on the consumer end, more efficient machines, helium recycling and recapture technology, and where possible, chemical substitutes, together with the economic downturn associated to the COVID-19 pandemic, has finally lowered demand enough to kind of stabilize the helium market. These days, more and more wells have come online in Algeria, in Qatar, uh, and with more on the way, for example, in Siberia. The helium market is entering a new diversified structure. Our lives are more bound up with helium than ever before. You might ask, do we have to mine helium? Can't we just find a way to make some more? And that's a reasonable question to ask. But to answer it, we'll need to learn where helium really comes from. And that is a question of nuclear physics. And that is a question for next time. This has been an installment of the Field Guide to Particle Physics, a copyrighted production of the Poseidon Institute. Thank you so much for listening. For a full, free, online copy of the Field Guide, please visit our website at poseidon.org or follow us on Instagram. 
we've got a lot of other resources for you there. At the Poseidon Institute, we're on a mission to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. Come learn with us. 